This is the Thomas K podcast. This podcast is a new thing, and episodes will be published very occasionally. As you'll hear, things are quite rough in the beginning, not very polished at all. I'm taking the minimum viable product approach to producing this podcast. Thanks for listening. I'm Thomas K. I'm here with Justin Goro. Uh, Justin is a Ethereum uh, is a developer who uses the Ethereum network. And um, is it fair to say that you're a libertarian? Uh, yes, you can say that. I mean, I don't, I don't particularly like to subscribe to labels, partly because they give people power over you, but uh, also partly because I don't want to confine myself to any particular thing. But I'm, I'm a, I have no problem with the libertarian philosophy. So you have an article on Medium with the title uh, Bitcoin has turned the human race into a hive mind supercomputer. Uh, and I really enjoyed that uh, article. I think that anyone listening to this should also read that if they haven't done already. Could you summarize, if you remember, a couple of the points, <laughs> the big ideas from that one? <laughs> You're putting me on the spot. because, um, <laughs> But um, so I think the fundamental... Okay, if we if we zoom out a bit and we look at how Bitcoin is organized, you have a number of players in Bitcoin who self-assemble the entire ecosystem, the entire blockchain. So, um, for instance, the mining, the the proof of work, the, the, the hint in the name is that nothing is actually done in the blockchain. So there's no, there's no actual mining per se that's happening in the blockchain. Um, instead, people are doing this in their own homes. Their own homes. They're just sort of they're buying their own hardware. They they're comparing electricity prices. They, in many cases, are writing their own software. They're going to an enormous amount of work, um, and then just providing a proof to the other members of the network. So, I think the thing I noticed with uh, Bitcoin is that by creating, when Satoshi created uh, scarcity out of nothing. He initiated a kind of um, ant colony reaction to it. He put it out there, and uh, people of all different types, without any sort of a coordination at any level, um, and when I say coordination at any level, I mean any sort of directed coordination at any level, uh, assembled this working machine. Uh, so it looks, it resembles uh, a networked hive intelligence quite a bit. And I know, obviously, the market economy works in a similar way to this, but I think what um, sets Bitcoin and all technologies based on blockchain going forward is it introduced a new concept, which was in the past markets would organize around existing scarcity. Um, Blockchain now allows us to programmably create scarcity. And so that's why I would say in the article, I actually, I say that, um, Ethereum or the blockchain, it's not a world computer, it's an incentive engine and it allows us to spin up scarcity on demand. And from this, we can create um, our own personal ant colonies if we get the incentives right. Um, So I think what this represents is uh, it's a runaway process. You know, Bitcoin can't be turned off now, no matter what. No one can turn it off. And so when these when these self-sustaining ant colonies of humans are created, um, it's permanent. And in often ca- in many cases, it's disruptive. So I think it's there's a kind of a gradual but exponential process whereby the entire world 
system is going to be replaced by these um, non-rivalrous um, networked intelligence economies. So you mentioned also in the article that a developer working in this space, um, that it requires a kind of uh, a mental switch to uh, to move to this uh, mode where you're dealing with anonymous groups of humans almost as if you were using their behavior like you would a function called in traditional development, right? So when you have the, the possibility for people anywhere to use smart contracts to uh, transact, I mean, uh, does it make sense to frame that as a kind of... Um, and again, in economic efficiency, is is that what what it reduces to, or is it um, is it more than that? Does that make sense? When you say framing it in economic inefficiency, what are you referring to in particular? So I don't know if I have a good example. Um, so the way the, the the kind of metaphor that I've been thinking of, and I'm not sure if it's if it's I'm kind of testing it out. I don't know how accurate it is, but right now, it's as if we have like the the world is filled with a bunch of um, information problems, like information asymmetry problems, um, transaction costs, and other kind of economic problems of that nature, um, which create a kind of lumpy landscape of incentives, in a sense. Uh, And that lumpiness uh, is what allows certain groups to exploit others in a a zero-sum game sense. What I'm wondering about is that if if this coming change translates to a kind of smoothing out of that landscape, I'm tr- I'm wondering whether that metaphor is useful. Um, so I don't think it's as simple as solving information asymmetries, and I think in many cases you don't you wouldn't want to solve information asymmetries because certain types of beneficial activities would actually cease to exist or break down. Um, I. I Look, I mean, there's two ways to take this. So the in one way, if you've got a particular problem or an existing institution in society and you recognize that there are some people at the top and who are exploiting some people at the bottom, but there's some sort of vaguely mutually beneficial relationship between them. So you have like a giant insurance industry. Um, that's an example where people need insurance but perhaps the entire relationship isn't quite where it should be. Um, at, so so the government approach would obviously be, or the top-down approach would be to envision some sort of utopian outcome and then try to force that on the market. Um, obviously, the, you know, that has problems for its own reasons that can be covered elsewhere. But I think what, the, what uh, blockchain solutions allow you to do, um, and when you're dealing with programmable uh, scarcity and so on, is to first break down the problem into first principles and try and think what type of goal you're trying to achieve, um, and then look at the tools you have. So look at the particular smart contract technology that you have, and um, the the goal that you're trying to achieve with the tools you're trying to have might end up it might involve you creating something completely different. Um, so you won't just be disintermediating some sort of third party, but you might create some sort of game between a whole bunch of new sets of users, where a byproduct is people end up being insured, but that isn't the actual intent of the game. It could be some sort of game for some particular other motive. Um, so to, to put this in more concrete example. 
one of the things about Bitcoin is that it is uh, censorship resistant. Um, but arguably, this wasn't the original goal of Bitcoin. The original goal was to create money that could be transferred over the internet. But as a byproduct, we have censorship resistance. And so Bitcoin has become a form of free speech because you can hash some sort of information and put it onto the blockchain and it's there. Um, so I think um, this sort of thing is going to happen more and more where you're going to have this complex emergent behavior emerging from some particular blockchain game that you've created that as a byproduct solves an existing problem that we didn't realize it could solve. And I think this is going to be far more effective in the long run of reshaping society than if we actually go after those problems. Because a lot of the, a lot of the times, a lot of the solutions where we go after a problem, we say, oh, blockchain is going to revolutionize the insurance market, and we go after it, we come up with a substandard product, and everyone ends up thinking, well, you know, the centralized one is actually more efficient and quicker and cheaper, and there isn't gas limits and block waiting times and blah, 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 blah. At the moment, we have a number of decentralized insurance applications um, that pretty much perform all of the essential features of insurance, but they are substandard for a number of reasons. Oh, I'm sorry, sorry not substandard, sub, uh, subpar with the existing solutions for a number of reasons. One of them is most of them are written on the Ethereum blockchain, and they utilize either their own uh, special tokens that they've created or the Ether token. And the problem with insuring anything of value in a volatile cryptocurrency is the end value that you get paid when you make a claim might have no relation to the to the value of the thing that you're insuring. And insurance is all about risk aversion, and now you're introducing a volatile asset and you're actually increasing the risk. Uh, I mean, we haven't seen volatility of the type of bit, like, that we see with Bitcoin and Ethereum and all these other cryptocurrencies until they're invented. So if you want to now introduce that into insurance, it's kind of pointless, right? I'd still rather insure um, in even a bad fiat currency like in the country I live in than in a typical cryptocurrency. But we now have this mechanism of insurance, so that's nice. On the other hand, you have other people like the MakerDAO crowd who have put a lot of thought and effort and I think have successfully created a stablecoin, a token that doesn't drift against the dollar yeah it's at the moment it's just pegged to the u.s dollar but it's cleverly designed and it seems to have stood the test of time so far um now when MakerDAO created their coin then you know you go running to your friends and family say hey there's now a token on the ethereum blockchain that's pegged to the dollar um and it's decentralized and everyone says yay whatever um and yes on its own it's pretty clunky and you'd still rather use dollars but now you've got this insurance market this decentralized insurance market and if you pair it with this stable coin, you've now solved that problem I spoke of originally, where you've got the you've got a perfectly working decentralized insurance market that is using the dollar, but in a way that can't be regulated or censored. So in other words, it's better than existing insurance in every possible conceivable way. And on top of that, because you're using Ethereum, you can develop very um, carefully designed incentives to discipline bad actors in the market. So again, it's, 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 it's now able to do things, uh, traditional things, such as provide insurance, in a way that traditional industries never could. And it never got there because it intentionally got there. Perhaps some parts of it were intentionally built. But I don't think... I don't think humans can actually extrapolate systematically very well. I think we're very good at extrapolating linearly. Um, And so I don't think when provided with building blocks, we can actually sit down, draw up blueprints and say, we're going to create this next big disruptive DAP. The best that we can do is just build really kick-ass building blocks that work for how they work. 
um, that might be completely useless when they're built. But further down the line, there'll be some sort of emergent complex product that completely blows everything out of the water. Yeah, so you, you're imagining a kind of um, a tool overhang, as it were, so that when, at the moment, that a suite of tools is ready to be used in whatever way people imagine, they're just already waiting to go, and so that I can emerge very quickly, potentially. Um, on the subject of tools, um, I want to talk a bit about the projects you're working on at the moment. Can you tell us a bit about that? Um, in, in that article I wrote, that Bitcoin uh, has turned the human race into a hive mind supercomputer. Um, in the one section, I actually go into depth highlighting how crappy Bitcoin te- or blockchain technology is. Um, because I then later reveal that that turns out to be a strength. But uh, there are a number of because of the way uh, distributed consensus works, there are a number of compromises that you have to make in order for this thing to remain decentralized. If you decentralize a, a computing engine that requires the absolute best modern hardware to perform its most basic required tasks, then you're not going to have many people who can afford to participate, and so it's going to become naturally centralized. So Ethereum, I mean, the Ethereum uh, machine has the processing power of a cell phone from the 90s, which isn't bad. I mean, it's you know we're always told it can it's better than the computers that took people to the moon and all that. So with Ethereum, you have a, a whole bunch of challenges. One of the challenges is that when people uh, provide information, so in, in the case of mining or, or calculating contracts or whatever, when they provide this information, there has to be um, there has to be a consensus on that information provided across the network within a very short span of time. Um, I think in Ethereum, that's called the block time. So in Bitcoin, that short span of time is about 20 minutes, but in Ethereum, it's on the order of 30 seconds uh, across the entire internet. This sort of synchronization has to happen. So that means that you pretty much can't have any information uh, added to the blockchain that is sourced from outside of the blockchain. All of the information, it almost has to be a self-deterministic machine. Everything that's happening in Ethereum has to happen within Ethereum. And as such, Ethereum has no native access to the outside internet. So when you create a smart contract, you're creating a bunch of calculations and so on, but the smart contract has absolutely no knowledge of what's happening in the outside world. It's a self-referential thing. So what Ethereum did is they introduced the concept, it's kind of a placeholder concept that they call oracles, which is basically a name for someone who provides information to the Ethereum network. Um, this isn't a special actor role, it can be anyone, but, but the idea is uh, if you're creating, if we go back to that insurance example, let's say you're creating an insurance contract as a farmer, um, you want insurance against flood damage. So the contract needs to have some sort of verifiable way of gaining information on whether there has been a flood in your area so that it can pay out uh, some lump sum payment to compensate you for the flood damage. Um, so the first generation of Ethereum apps, the basic way they did it is they just delegated an existing API, uh, an existing company to provide, you know, weather.com or something to provide that information, which if you, in- if you inject that dependency onto an existing company, a single entity, into your app, turns it from a decentralized app into a 100% centralized app. In fact, it's worse than a centralized app because you're not running it quickly on a server. You're running it slow and at a cost uh, on the blockchain, but it's still centralized because at the end of the day, if weather.com is seized or if it goes under or whatever, then your app is completely useless. 
and then you would need to redeploy a new app to the blockchain and who knows if you would get the same user base and it introduces a whole bunch of hairy stuff that um, yeah, authenticity, things like that. So uh, so that was the long sort of intro. That's, that's called the Oracle Dilemma in the Ethereum community. It's basically like Ethereum is useless until we have a decent way of decentralizing oracles. It's not useless. They are, there is a small subset of smart contracts that can work without outside information. Um, this set of smart contracts has existed since humans have been civilized, and that type of smart contract is called money. So that's the only type of uh, smart contract that can is self-referential. It doesn't need access to anything else. Everything else is in reference to money and not vice versa. Um, so that's why the first bunch of successful Ethereum projects and blockchain projects, and in fact Bitcoin itself, was all currency-based. It was the killer app of blockchain because it didn't need access to outside information. But the problem with the smart contracts is the word contract, which they're trying to evoke, they're trying to disrupt the legal system. If you look at a traditional written paper contract, I mean, it's full of references to the outside world. It's full of external conditions and subjective clauses. So there's no way that a smart contract in any way mimics a real contract because a real contract, as one of its founding principles, is referencing the outside world, is referencing a, an external event in order to uh, verify the the uh, claim of the contract. Um, so once you solve the, the oracle dilemma, if it's solvable, then it's contracts, smart contracts finally become contracts. They're no longer, or at least... They finally, they finally get to call themselves contracts in the full legal sense, not in the narrow sense of money transfer. Um, so the basic, I mean, the, 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 the only way I can think of solving the Oracle dilemma is to create a network of Oracles. Once again, whenever you solve a blockchain problem, I guess it's like any engineering problem. You've got to think about what your goal is, and then you've got to break it down into first principles. And the first principles, of course, would be the, the building blocks of the technology and the economics. And then you've got to think, how can you build this all back up to achieve your final goal? Um, and in doing so, the first thing is to discover the different classes of oracles that there are. So um, I would say one of my, my definitions would be that there are two major classes of oracles, um, active oracles, um, and these would be people who um, a smart contract would request information and the active oracle would supply that information on request. So if you have some sort of legal agreement between people, they would make some sort of, the contract would make some sort of call. Um, something on the internet would be monitoring that the blockchain state and on that call would provide information to the contract. That would be an, a kind of on-demand oracle call. Then the other type of oracle um, would be a passive oracle. And what the passive oracle would do is the passive oracle would establish a stream of information without any regard or knowledge of who is consuming that information. So they would just feed a particular stream of information to the blockchain. That information is automatically public and then at that point anyone in the world can consume that information. The passive oracle is not targeting any specific smart contract, for instance. Yes, yes. A passive oracle. I mean, they can, but uh, but uh, Generally, what you're interested in with a passive oracle is a type of information, so be it exchange rates or weather patterns or whatever it is. Um, and we want to get that oracle to – and there are a number of benefits to establishing passive oracles. It's not necessarily one 
passive is better than active. There's obviously a place for both. But one of the benefits of a passive oracle is they provide that information once and it can be consumed uh, ad nauseum by the entire internet forever, um, which means that as this, the demand for this information scales, the load on the blockchain doesn't scale. It's, it's a, in computer science, they call it a constant order uh, scaling complexity. Um, so whereas, let's say you have a very well-known active Oracle uh, um, service. In fact, there is one, Oracleize. They were the, one of the first ones who tried to solve the Oracle problem. And I would say their, their strategy is the active Oracle mechanism. So with Oracleizes, you kind of hook up a smart contract to a known API that you like. And Oracleize does the sort of middleman stuff to make sure that that information gets there when when it's needed. So the drawback of using, and I love Oracleize, but I'll just talk about what passive oracles address. Um, so the drawback with that is you could have a whole number of smart contracts all accessing the same feed of information but but they have no knowledge that there's a common pool of this information and so every time one of them requests it there's a there's a smart contract sorry there's a, a blockchain hit with that information so you could have like a hundred different contracts accessing the US dollar bitcoin price and then you get the the US dollar bitcoin price injected into the blockchain a hundred times and it's the same piece of information so that's terrible for scaling um and it it'll, it would if that ever did happen it would completely clog up the blockchain um so the the passive Oracle one is quite nice for at least on the demand side. It doesn't it doesn't clog up the blockchain at all. Um, so the project. So so the way I wanted to take my project that I'm working on at the moment is I wanted to kind of solve the Oracle dilemma for passive oracles. And the way I would do that is I want to create essentially the basic idea is you want people who want to consume data to provide incentives for those who can supply the data. Um, and then while I was thinking about it, I realized that if you design the incentives correctly, if you have enough carrot and stick in the system, you don't actually have to worry about where that data comes from. Um, if there's a verifiable way for people to discipline bad actors who are providing false data, then it, it, then you, you actually become API agnostic. And if you can do that, if you can establish a stream of data for a very well-known, I mean, you know, for, for a well-desired uh, data feed, for instance, you know, US dollar Bitcoin price or Ethereum, uh, you know, any sort of exchange rate or any sort of information that's needed. If you can establish a robust stream um, where you are source ignorant, then it means that that stream is robust over time. And as long as that information is desired and as long as it exists it will be verifiably fed to the blockchain and it will outlive any API. Just to interrupt there. So when I heard this the first time, I was confused by uh, the word stream, I think, because I was, I'm, I'm used to thinking in terms of blogs and things like that, in which a stream is a continuous series of episodes, let's say, uh, all by the same author. And what you're talking about is not necessarily that, right? Well, that's actually that's a good analogy, um, but maybe it's more like a maybe it's more akin to like your Facebook stream, your timeline, or something. It's not necessarily um, we're not necessarily concerned about the author so much as the topic. So maybe the best analogy then using in, using other internet analogies, it's it's like the comment section, except not vile. Um, <laughs> so you've got a particular YouTube video, everyone's talking about it, 
um, and they they're supplying an infinite stream of comments on top of that YouTube video. So and similarly, um, so I suppose we haven't got to the the point yet because I said we're, we're source uh, ignorant. You know, we don't care about the source of the data. It also means that we don't necessarily care about who supplies that data. So we've got two sort of levels of indirection here. It's um, we we don't know where the data is coming from, but we do know that we can discipline the bad actors who supply bad data. So at any point, if someone is supplying the US dollar Bitcoin price, um, there's a mechanism whereby someone can challenge that. And then at that point, they can then say, well, look, according to uh, you know this particular very trustworthy site at this time, your numbers are completely off. So at any given point in time when there's a dispute, we can look at what's most popular and what's most trusted in the world. But we don't have to say, okay, this particular site, you know, bitcoinprice.com is now going to be our source of data for the rest of time. It also means that, you know, if Harry supplied the Bitcoin dollar price today, um, doesn't mean Sarah can't supply the Bitcoin dollar price tomorrow because at any point that person can be challenged. So it's an, it's kind of an institution that outlives APIs and it outlives the people who supply it. So just to, to go back a step, um, in this arrangement, you'd have um, a consumer of data who puts out a, essentially a request for, they signal to the world, hey, I want this particular kind of data, right? Yes. And the way I want it to be is a kind of a permanent request. So the the first level would be you establish on the blo- on the blockchain, on the Ethereum blockchain, you establish a, uh, a particular type of data you want. Uh, again, I'm using the exchange rate examples because I feel like it's those are the most appropriate uh, use cases, but they could, I'm sure there'll be all sorts of weird use cases in the future. Um, but again, you, you're interested in a particular exchange rate that you want to be decentralized and fed to the blockchain. So you establish, uh, you, in, you inject a bunch of information to the blockchain to start off. Is you've got the you've got the feed type, so it'll be like, you know, the US dollar ether price, and then you can also establish like accuracy um, parameters that anyone supplying data in the future will be judged by. Um, and then there's a bunch of other parameters. So you would, you would first set up a kind of like a a list of uh, like a checklist of things that people have to look out for before they supply this data. So that's the first step. Uh, once you've done that, the blockchain gives you a unique number that will be associated with that particular data feed. So you'll set up. You'll say, okay, I, I want I want to establish a feed of uh, information for the US dollar. Eth price and it has this particular accuracy requirements, etc., etc., etc. The blockchain then gives you back a unique number. You can then treat that number as the pointer to that that criteria and that set of criteria for the rest of time. So now, if, once you've got this feed established, if you write a smart contract, you know, a hundred years from now, and you want your smart contract to be based on the US dollar Eth price, you go through the list of these feeds. You find one that exists. You've got like the US dollar S one that exists, a feed, and it has a unique number associated with that. You can then hard code your smart contract based on that number. So this is another example of how um, by establishing these on-chain um, immortal feeds of data, you can then build on top of that permanent smart contracts that you know will always be reliably fed that feed of information. If Does that make sense? Yeah. So... In creating a feed of data like this, there are, am I right to think of it in, in two kind of steps? As in, first of all, uh, there are criteria established for how the data has to conform to be considered valid. 
and after that there is um there's a bidding process right Yes. So now we've established the feeds. Now we actually want to incentivize people to supply that information. Um, so there will be basically anyone can then put out a bounty on a particular feed. So now you've got the feeds established. Now you say on feed number 352, um, I'm going to put out a 50 ether bounty for this information to be fed um, three weeks from now. And I want it to be fed for the duration of a week. So you put out this time specific bounty with a cash deposit placed in it and now now you've got an incentive for people to actually um to actually bid for that right to supply the data so this is the other part so i don't want to have you know 60 people supplying information and then we have some sort of market process to find out whose is the best and all that i tried to do that in my first iteration of this project and i realized the blockchain doesn't actually allow you to do that. So you've got these things called gas constraints in Ethereum, which basically is if you've got any smart contract that's too complex, it's just going to be rejected. It has to be very, very simple. So um, what I did instead was I said, okay, on the on this on the demand side, you've got people putting out bounties for data. Now on the supply side, um, so you've got a bounty that's been put out that says um, from the 10th of August to the 10th of October. Uh, some guy has put out 100 ETH um, for the US dollar Bitcoin price to be fed into the blockchain. So now uh, there's a secondary, oh, there's another market where people who want to supply that information will now bid uh, to in, a, in an auction process to get the right to supply that information. And what that winning bid represents is a deposit against which they will be judged. So the winning the, the highest bidder the person who can supply the highest bid will then have their ether locked in a smart contract and they then supply their information on that in that particular date if at any point they uh, supply bad information or they just forget to supply information during that period their deposit is forfeit uh, so there's actually like a secondary judicial system that takes care of that um if, however, they, they play by the rules of the game, their deposit is released, and they get paid the bounty that was initially put up. So there's skin in the game for for people creating these feeds, for people putting out bounties, but there's definitely, the most important is, there's a lot of skin in the game for people supplying this information. What is the project called? And do you want to tell us a bit more about that? So the project is called Pythia. In ancient Greece, we all know about the famous oracles, the oracles Delphi and so on. Um, now, the under the god Apollo, there was a series of priestesses who established a kind of an oracle institution called the, and they, they called these priestesses the Pythia. At any given point in time, there was only one Pythia who was the oracle at the time, and when she would die, her mantle would go to one of the high priestesses. Someone would be chosen through some mechanism to then take up the mantle of the Pythia, um, and. It turns out that the institution of Pythia lasted many hundreds of years and became incredibly trustworthy to the point where um, Greek scholars, actually, when they mentioned the Pythia, they often neglected to explain what it was because for the, at the time it was self-evident. So Pythia, as a trustless, uh, immortal institution, um, it actually existed far longer than any of the famous oracles and people tended to use it more. Um, the Pythia, the word itself, refers to, now I said this came from the god Apollo. The god Apollo, um, de- um, he killed this um, 
multi-headed python beast and i think they can't remember the exact story but i think they then used the the head of this beast in the in the temple of the pythia um and it it's a symbol to represent um that there's no central source of failure um so this whole sort of decentralized talk censorship resistant way of dealing with truth was actually established by the Greeks in the institution of Pythia. So if anything I'm just stealing that institution and putting it on the blockchain. If people want to follow your work or uh, see your stuff online where where is a good place for them to go? At the moment uh the best place would be to follow my Medium blog. Um so if you just search for Justin Goro on on medium um i think it would oh, goro is in g o r o like the model combat character um yeah that's probably the that's probably they're going to get the best information at the moment i'm doing some i'm obviously putting all my code on github my my github tag is get it goro so get it goro so they can follow that and pythia is there if for the technical get users amongst you i'm not my code my my latest code isn't on the master branch it's on the branch judiciary um but anyway when any new developments that happen with pythia and with other supporting projects that i want to build in anticipation and in response to pythia i'll make my announcements on my medium blog thanks very much for your time is there anything else you'd like to add no i think that's all thank you you've been listening to the thomas k podcast If you'd like to support my video work, go to patreon.com/thomask. My name's spelled the Polish way with no h and a z on the end. So, spelled out, the whole address is p a t r e o n.com/t o m a s z k a y e with no spaces. <laughs>